Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chris's Courses in our current series, Questions in Genesis, where we're looking at the first foundational book of the Bible and seeing what kind of questions it wants us to ask about who God is and about who we are. So where we're at in the story, we're going to be picking up in chapter 18. We're in the middle of the Abraham narrative, where God appears to basically a random nobody out of nowhere and gives him this promise that he's going to make him a great nation, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And so we've been focusing on this character and how at times he has great faith and at times his faith seems a little lacking. And what we've been seeing the past couple of chapters is God reaffirming this promise to Abraham. And God is doing that because there's still no son. There's no heir for Abraham and Sarah. And they keep getting older and older and years go by. And God doesn't seem to be carrying out his side of the promise. And so this is the, the drama, the tension of how is God actually taking care of and addressing this promise that he's made. Now, what we saw earlier in chapter 18, where we're going to pick up, is God appearing to Abraham and Sarah as three strangers. And we talked about last time how this is this kind of mysterious imagery. Uh, many people, you know, reflecting from a Christian standpoint, see the Trinity in this image not probably in the view of, of the original audience of Genesis, but again, this is a way where we can acknowledge it. it's a different perspective, but we can also still see these things in there. But the important part of that story for uh, the rest of Genesis, the next couple chapters going forward, was the way that Abraham showed this uh, amazing hospitality to these strangers who visit. Right, He slaughters a fattened calf, provides this extraordinary amount of food, for people, he doesn't know who they are, right? He doesn't know that it's God, but he shows hospitality, and that shows you something important about Abraham's character. And so as we get into chapters 18 and 19 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to see that, that that idea, that theme of hospitality is actually still central, and Abraham was the positive side. We're about to get the extreme opposite, the extreme negative opposite of hospitality. But before God does anything with these cities— we have this really interesting passage where God is kind of reflecting on this. We're getting some of God's internal monologue. So we're going to pick up in Genesis 18, starting in verse 16. Then the men, this is the three angels, uh, or God and the angels, they set out from there, and they looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin! I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So when you hear the first part of that, how does God come across to you? Is that the way that you think of God, uh, thinking through things, reasoning things out, trying to decide what to do? I think we're seeing here something that we've seen a lot in Genesis of a, a more primitive understanding of God. And again, I don't say that in a, in a negative way. It's just, it's, these are ancient people, and so their view of God in some ways was ancient. Um, God here seems more human. Uh, again, even just the idea it mentions where the creator has to come down and see what's really going on. 
right? That's that's not really the way that we tend to think about God, and I think we have maybe a, a, a better, a, a more uh, advanced, more mature understanding of God and how God can see what's going on without having to come down and look at it. Uh, so again, it's a, it's a constant thing. God is uh, depicted as more human. Uh, be anthropomorphic is the fancy word for that, right? God walking in the garden, God having hands to to form human beings. It's, it's all part of that. And, and so again, it's not to focus on, well, is that literally the way that God works or what God is like? It's what is this saying about God's character here? You know, and so here as we're getting this internal monologue from the Lord, it's God reflecting on, okay, how am I going to include Abraham in this process? You know, as he's acknowledging here, you know, I'm I'm putting a lot of stock in Abraham, so I probably should tell him what I'm thinking about. You know, I, I want Abraham to be a part of this. And so I, I don't think we should assume that every time God is making decisions, God's kind of like having to work through all this in his head, but more of this, this idea of what we're seeing here is God wants to include us in what God is doing. God isn't just giving these proclamations from on high, but God actually is trying to work with humanity. So Abraham is illustrating that thing, the, the fact that, that we can all believe that God, if God has actually given us free will, as, as I believe scripture depicts, then whatever God is doing, God's got to factor us into what, what God decides to do. Now, a, a big theme in this passage and the chapters we're looking at today, and really throughout the Old Testament, are the ideas of righteousness and justice. Now, there's lots of different ways we might define those. You know, I know in my upbringing, justice was not really something that we talked a lot about as, uh, you know, a biblical concept. Uh, and, and especially, you know, we think of that more as a social thing. That's uh, the rest of the world, you know, we have a justice system and they take care of that, but we don't really think of that as, as a spiritual thing. Uh, and yet it is very central uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Sometimes the translations don't carry that across uh, as well as maybe they could, but it's still a major theme in, in what Jesus talks about and, and everything else that uh, is, is central to something that matters to God. And, you know, we should think of justice, you know, doing good, uh, making, things, making things fair for people, especially people who tend to not receive justice, uh, that it is, is paired very often with righteousness, uh, that, that there's something similar about these two. You know, I know we've talked about this probably several times even in this study, but righteousness is not just this internal, vague sort of spiritual state of you've checked the right boxes and so God says that you're righteous it's relational, just like justice. It's about how you treat others. Righteousness is doing right by another person. And so God does that. God, in a sense, seems to be trying to work out what that looks like in this situation with, with the, the problems, whatever Sodom is doing. But that's the conversation. It's about righteousness and justice. And so if Abraham is going to do righteousness and justice, right? Again, they're things you do, not just states that you have or attain. If Abraham's going to do that, he needs to see how God does it. So that's why God decides to include Abraham in this conversation. And I think that's partly why also Abraham is able to be so bold in the conversation, as we'll see. We also hear in this that apparently someone or something is crying out against Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, it could be the people that are being affected by this. It could be just their violence in general is somehow crying out to God. There's also an idea we've seen in Genesis of uh, when innocent blood is spilled, that blood 
speaks. And so that, that could be some sort of the idea of, of what is crying out. But wherever it's coming from, God has heard it, and God is acknowledging it, and God is going to do something about it. God is going to do justice. But what does that look like? Well, let's listen to this uh, discussion or argument between Abraham and God as they sort this out. <clears throat> so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive in it the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. And then he said, Oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. The Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Okay, that almost sounds like an auction, right? <laughs> They're just kind of haggling over the number of righteous people, the minimum that's required. When you think about the prayers that you hear, especially publicly in church, you think about the prayers that you often pray, would you describe them as bold or confident? Is there anything in your prayers or the prayers you hear that, that sound like what was just going on between Abraham and God there? And we're told in, in Hebrews that because of the work of Christ, we should approach God's throne with all boldness, with confidence, that we don't have to, you know, the, if the king is inviting you to speak your mind, you, you don't want to insult him by groveling or, or just telling him what he wants to hear. You know, I know, you know in Jesus we also see modeled the mindset of not my will, but yours be done, and, and that's certainly true. But I think sometimes we go so far that we won't really ask God. We won't really be honest with what we want God to do. We won't actually speak our mind when God says, no, tell me what you think. If you read, especially like the Psalms, you see people of faith doing this over and over. Uh, it's a boldness that kind of makes us uncomfortable. And we see that, again, modeled here in Abraham, who's called a friend of God. So, I mean, it's true, right? Who do you really speak your mind to? It's the people that you actually have the closest relationship with. And so if you actually have a close relationship with God, then you should be bold. You should speak your mind. Uh, that's not inherently unfaithful to do that. And that's what we see here. You know, it's not really about the number, right? Oh, well, okay, if there's 10 good people and I can't destroy it, it's, it's about who God is and it's about justice. You know, this is a question I think we, we might ask sometimes. Is it right to question God's fairness, to question God's justice? Um, you know, maybe this is echoing a little bit back to the flood story where, you know, God seems to have already realized you should know that just wiping everyone out doesn't actually solve the problem. And, you know, as I read Genesis, I think that's kind of what this book is doing, is it's, 
it's it's looking at that question, right? Of what does justice call for in these situations, and and what should God do if a, if God is a God of justice? You know, is is justice something that's higher than God, or does God determine what is just? You know, I think you can actually take both of those questions or those answers too far, because if you say, well, justice demands that God do this. Well, the, what you've just done is made justice something higher than God, and and God is kind of subservient to this concept of justice and beholden to it. But if God is God, then God should be above any concept like that. But uh, on the other extreme, you will sometimes hear the view that saying, well, wiping out groups of people, it is just if God says it is, right? And God can change his mind and say, no, that's that's a bad thing later, but God's not being inconsistent because God determines what is just and we have no say in that, right? I, I think that's also problematic uh, for terms like justice or goodness to have any meaning. There has to be con- some consistency to it. That's just the nature of language. So we, I think we want to avoid both of those extremes. Uh, but but we're seeing here, again, it's, it's a more primitive view of, of God, in a sense, deciding to be just or to be loving or has to be convinced to do that. I don't actually think that's the case, but I see here reflected this ancient discussion, them, them working out what this is like. I think a higher view, a better view, is God just automatically does what is just. God does what is loving because God is love. And if we want to see the clearest expression of God's justice, the way that God addresses evil, you look at the cross. That is how God deals with evil. And so anything that does not align with the way of the cross, this self-sacrificial emptying of oneself, of, of not taking revenge on one in, one's enemies, but, but taking that in on yourself, if it's not that, then it's not actually who God is. And so what we're seeing here is you know, Abraham kind of pointing out justice that doesn't care about innocent people getting punished or collateral damage. That's not justice. I mean, I, the, the central question here is when Abraham says, is not the judge of all the, all the earth going to do what's just? Right? If, if you're the judge of everything, then more than anyone else, God has to be just. And yet, so often I see depictions of God that are less just than what an average person would do. And as Jesus again points out in the Sermon on the Mount, if this is what a normal person or even a quote-unquote evil person would do, why do you think God would do worse than that? And so, again, we're, we're in this conversation of what is the just thing to do here? Uh, but Abraham, I think, makes a good point that many of us still need to hear that if, if innocent people are being punished by our justice, it is not just. Uh, it was true then, and it's true now, even in our context. When we think about the way that we carry out justice in our justice system, is there collateral damage? Are innocent people being hurt? And if that's the case, then we need to reevaluate things, especially as people of faith. But justice is important, and it's needed when there is wrongdoing that's going on. And so now we want to go to Sodom, uh, not literally, because well, we can't, I want to go to Sodom and look at, okay, what is the problem here that God needs to address in order to do justice? So we'll pick up in chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot, this is Abraham's nephew, Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet 
Then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Okay, so this seems to indicate uh, more clearly that the visitors that came were God and then two angels. Although it often goes back and forth. Again, I think the mystery there is intriguing. But here, the Lord stayed with Abraham. These two angels go on to Sodom. So again, this is a place to remember that the theme of this section of Genesis is hospitality. Right? Abraham showed uh, radical hospitality, and you know, it, it was necessary in the ancient world. Right? There were no hotels. There wasn't a Holiday Inn you could go just check into. Uh, you were going to be dependent on somebody else opening their home for you, or else you'll just spend the night in the town square, which is kind of what they're saying they'll do. Uh, now, Lot, he seems to recognize, yeah, you guys, you guys don't want to stay on the, in the public square after dark. That's not a good idea. So you come to my house. Lot shows them hospitality. It's, it's not quite as extreme as his uncle Abraham. Um, I don't know if that's meant to be reflected on his character. Uh, we'll see other things about Lot in just a minute that reflect poorly on his character. But, you know, typically he's just kind of okay. He's a decent guy, uh, not as great as, as Father Abraham. Uh, so, they come to town, Lot shows them hospitality, and then it all uh, goes wrong. So, let's pick up and see what happens next in verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men and shut the door after him. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and he would play the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. Okay, so we have to talk about the sin of Sodom. And there's probably already plenty of assumptions about what that is. And so I think it's important to state that the sin of Sodom really is not about homosexuality, as we define it. For one thing, it's actually kind of ridiculous to think that there is a town populated entirely by gay men, and that that's the problem, and that's why God is judging it. Now, there's a longer conversation to be had here that, that we don't have time for today about the concept of sexual orientation. Uh, that, that idea that someone is either gay or straight, that's a concept that did not exist in the ancient world, in, in the Hebrew mindset, even into the time of the New Testament in the first century. Um, that's a modern concept, and they didn't, they didn't think that way that you had just a particular attraction, as we understand it today at least. Uh, and so that's really not, not the focus. Now that is, in a sense, what they're trying to do, but in the context, their sin is really about how do they treat strangers? It's about hospitality. And so, uh, I mean, this is a bit of a content warning, but the opposite of hospitality would probably be an attempted gang rape, because that's what they're trying to do here. And, and we know through history and, and in places around the world, rape is often used as a form of domination. It's used to dehumanize another person. Uh, it's not just really about sex. It's about power. Uh, 
And so we know that happened in war a lot of time. Uh, it still can happen in prison. Um, and, you know, the, the gender is not really the important part. It's, it's about dominating someone else. It's about the shame. You know, unfortunately, in this story, there's a lot of patriarchal sort of assumptions. Um, one of the reasons that uh, same-sex acts were considered bad is that it shames a man to be penetrated because you're treating them like a woman, right? And in their patriarchal mindset, a woman is inherently less than a man. So treating a man like you would treat a woman sexually, that is shameful for that man who experiences that. And another uh, bad assumption, patriarchal assumption we see here is that any man's honor is more important than any woman's. And in this case, that includes even Lot's own daughters, right? You know, here, just, just take them because it's more important that I protect the honor of these male guests than that I let my own daughters be sexually assaulted. Um, yeah, that, we all you know, see that as a pretty terrible thing, but I think we need to realize that's why he would think that that's even an option, right? Obviously, his daughters should be under his care, but in their culture, in their time, that's how little women mattered compared to men. They'd be better for his own daughters to experience that than for uh, men who are his guests to experience that. So they're judged here, again, for how quickly they turn violent against outsiders. Right? They're trying to do that to these two men who visit, and then they do that to Lot, too. Right? As soon as he questions them and says, hey, maybe no, you, you shouldn't do this. Like, hey, you're not from around here either, are you? And we're going to do something worse to you than what we plan to do to them. I think a, a better, the best modern parallel from you know recent experience in our uh, our country would be: imagine a black man visiting a southern town after the Civil War. All right, so this crowd at Sodom is really like a lynch mob, and in, in what they're trying to do. Right, this this threat of violence, it's saying you're not welcome here, and we're going to do the worst thing we can imagine to you. So if you really want to know about the sin of Sodom, um, you just look through the rest of uh, the Old Testament, and it'll tell you. Uh, go to Ezekiel, the prophet, chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, and Ezekiel says what their sin was. So I'll just read this from Ezekiel 16. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Right? So Ezekiel is talking to Jerusalem, comparing them to uh, Sodom, another city, they often use uh, female languages to re refer to, to cities. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, so communities around her, they had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. So the sin of Sodom, it's not about their sexuality. It's about how much wealth they had, and it's about their pride, and it's their unwillingness to help the poor. So if you want to think about, you know, where do we see the sin of Sodom today? Well, it is pretty present, and I would say it's present in our country, but it's a different sin than what a lot of people want to acknowledge, and I think it's actually a much more serious sin, one that really does hurt people that are most on the edges of society, most in need of justice, uh, they often don't receive it. That's what God cares about. That's what God is upset about. And so we need to pay attention to that as well. So next we get the fate of, of Sodom. I won't read through the whole rest of the story. Suffice to say, uh, they don't hit the quota of 10 righteous people. Uh, instead, it just affirms the evil of the city. But 
God lets Lot's family escape, right? In that sense, the judge of the earth is just. You know, with that whole discussion, maybe Abraham was thinking about his nephew and his family. Uh, and so God is going to destroy the city, but the those quote-unquote innocent people, although I'd say Lot doesn't seem that great here, uh, they get to escape. Uh, and what you see through all this, you have multiple people who uh, all hesitate or look back, right? The fiancés of Lot's daughters, uh, when when Lot comes and says, hey, we got to get out of here, they just think he's joking. By the way, I wonder what they would have thought of their potential father-in-law offering uh, their um, their fiancés <laughs> to a, a mob. Um, but they don't want to come. Lot, it even says in uh, in verse 16, he lingered, and they the angels literally have to drag him out. And then probably most famously, Lot's wife looks back uh, and then becomes a pillar of salt, whatever, whatever that means. So, you know, the question here is, why is it hard to leave things behind even when they're terrible? You know, we all probably have something like that in our life. Maybe, uh, maybe it's an actual addiction or maybe it's a relationship that we know is not good for us. But, man, it's just, I, I don't know if I want to leave it. You know, I think there's just this idea sometimes that it's better to stick with something that I know is awful because I know it rather than go into something new because it's it's different. It's change, right? Change is scary. Leaving behind uh, the life before us, even if it was a pretty bad life, it's not easy. And so I think, you know, even here we can see that. But if you live in the past, it's it's not good, right? <laughs> like Lot's wife, if you live in the past, you might become salty, which for those that aren't in on that lingo, that's uh, just, if you're salty, you're just uh, negative and angry about everything. So, you know, we, we don't completely ignore our past, but we can't just live in it. Uh, the phrase I've heard before is that the past is a place of reference, not a place of residence. And so in this case, the, it literally, Sodom is not a good place of residence, and so they've got to leave. But maybe there's something that you've got to leave behind, uh, part of your past that your mind just can't stop living in, and it's time to let that go. And so at the end, we have this fire and sulfur and smoke rising. This is kind of this prototypical image of judgment. And so whenever you see, you know, uh, fire and brimstone uh, used metaphorically in Scripture, it's really a reference to this. It all goes back to this. Uh, and so it's this idea of, of the punishment is over and the destruction lasts, right? So in Isaiah... Uh, and then in Revelation, where it talks about the smoke going up forever and ever, it's not talking about people suffering forever and ever. It's saying that um, when God acted for the sake of justice, it's final, right? Uh, and that's that's the end. We don't have to worry about evil coming back again because God is taking care of it. That's that's the image here, and I would say all through Scripture, that is the image whenever you see talk of fire and brimstone. So the last little bit of this section is in uh, starting in verse 30 with Lot's daughters. And we'll go ahead and read it, even though it's also a little bit uncomfortable and weird. Now, Lot went up out of Zoar. This is a, a city nearby that he wanted, maybe wanted to go to. And he settled in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the world. I'll let you figure out what that means. Come, let's make our father drink wine, and we'll lie with him, so that we may preserve offspring through our father. So they made their father drink drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down and when she rose. 
On the next day, the firstborn said to her younger, Look, I lay last night with the father. Let's make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, so we may preserve offspring through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger rose and lay with him, and he did not know that she lay down and when she rose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and named him Moab. He's the ancestor of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and named him Ben-Ami. He's the ancestor of the Ammonites to this day. So what would you do if you thought you were the last person on earth? I, I think that seems to be what the daughters have assumed at this point. That this destruction they just saw was, was worldwide, just like with the flood again. And so I was like, all right, well, it's the three of us, and there's only one thing we can do to preserve the human race. Um, so again, it's a weird story. Uh, it's, uh, you know, you wonder why it's in there. And so it seems like the real purpose is just to give an unflattering origin for some of Israel's enemies. You know, if you go through the rest of, of the Old Testament, Moab and uh, the Ammonites, both of these people uh, are often enemies of Israel. And so it is very similar to the story of Noah's drunkenness, and whatever happens there, and how Canaan is cursed, right? Canaan is also uh, an enemy of the Israelites. So, again, it's less about the, the historical accuracy of this and tracing bloodlines. It's, it's a way of them trying to make sense of their world and, and say something about the people around them that, that they don't like and just say, like, hey, we know where you came from. Guess what? Um, but even with that, you know, the Moabites, well, that's where Ruth comes from. She's a Moabite. If you go and read the story of Ruth, it says that over and over and over that, hey, by the way, you know, she's from these people, uh, and this is supposedly their origin. You know, so as much as there's this voice that's trying to say, yeah, these people, they just come from here, and that's why they're all evil, well, there's always other voices that say, yeah, but maybe they're not what you think they are. Maybe they're actually better than us sometimes. That's definitely the theme of the book of Ruth. And then she becomes um, an ancestor of King David. And so we need to be careful about determining ahead of time, these people are all like this. And these people are so bad, the only thing that we can do with them is, is just wipe them out. Right? The world would just be a better place if not for these people. That, that mindset is not limited to any one view, any political party or uh, religious persuasion. We can all think that about others. And it's usually only going to make things terrible, right? It's, it's never correct. Um, you know, we have to think about, again, the theme here of justice and what do we do about evil, right? If God is just, God can't just ignore it, and yet what we expect God to do to our enemies may not be exactly what God has in mind. How do we reconcile these stories and God's desire for justice with Jesus' call to love our enemies, Justice and love don't exclude each other, and in, but in, in God, in Christ, there has to be a way that they come together. And I think that's our task, as we try and work out what justice and righteousness looks like, as we try and do justice for others, to do right by those who are most often wronged. How can we do that in a Christ-like way? To take evil seriously, but not label other people, or especially label groups of people as evil, but to acknowledge all the ways that every human heart often is inclined to, to do things that are selfish, and yet to see ourselves all, see them and us as made in the image of God, and therefore deserving of God's love and deserving of ours. So, uh, thanks for being with us. I know this episode came out a little bit late because of some holiday stuff, uh, but you'll get another episode in, in just a couple of days after this. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.